Welcome to The Green Rush, a podcast about the business of cannabis. On a weekly basis, hosts Ann Donahoe and Lewis Goldberg talk with the CEOs, politicians, and cultural icons driving the cannabis industry forward. This is episode 39, where Lewis and Ann speak with Danny Moses, who was firmly at the center of the financial meltdown back in 2007-2008 as a trader working for Steve Eisman. If you don't know who Danny is, you should. He's one of the smartest guys from Wall Street, and over the past few years, he's been going long on the cannabis sector, just as he went short on the 2007 housing market. This chat is a doozy. Get your Investorpedia open. Now don't sit back, lean forward. Now, on to the conversation with Danny Moses. Danny, thanks for joining us. It's my pleasure. Thanks for having me. Our, we're, I've been, I can personally tell you I've been really looking forward to this conversation for a while. And, and before we get into our chat, I just wanted to let everybody listening know that they should, they should really focus and listen on, to Danny's podcast, Bale Street, where he um, and his friend Ira Juddelson talk to some of the biggest celebrities in, in, out there. Um, and I can tell you, as an old school Knicks fan from like the 1980s, um, listening to you shoot the shit with Charles Oakley was great. And the conversation around the, the Fair Punishment Project and bail reform and promise, and there are going to be links to all those in, in the show notes, all really, really resonated with me. Great. So before we jump into cannabis, let's go back a decade. The defining moment for anyone who's in their 30s or older was the financial crisis that really kind of broke in 2007. And while the economy seemed to be firing on all cylinders then, and similarly, um, it seemed to be firing on all cylinders now, back in 2007, um, all hell broke loose. The real estate bubble burst and millions of Americans lost their homes, their jobs, and for many of them, they lost their lives. And at the center of this collapse was the mortgage-backed security um, and all those crazy derivative proje- products. You know, you've, you've heard the names, um, CDOs, CMS, synthetics, etc. They go on and on. And while the vast majority of Americans lost at least a piece of their American dream, um, a handful of really smart guys saw this bubble well before it burst. And we're talking to one of them. Um, You made a ton of money betting against the big banks, not against America per se, but against the banks who had basically been defrauding us all. And as one of these guys, Danny, you worked with a guy named Steve Eisman and you guys shorted credit default swaps. Now, our listeners may not know what a CDS is or a CDO is, um, and since this is a pot show, I'm not going to ask you to explain them. We'll just put links to Investopedia in there. But I remember 2007 like it was yesterday. It scared the shit out of me, and you were at the center of this whirlwind. How scared were you? I mean, you knew exactly what was going on in the financial world. I mean, were you ready to jump? Yeah, we were. Uh, it was pretty nerve-wracking towards the end. Um, Prior to that, we just were excited that, you know, we had a call on housing, the housing prices would go down. It looked like it was happening for a while. There was a disconnect between home prices and what was actually happening in these derivatives. And just to take a step back, so you actually buy protection on credit default swaps to make it even a little bit more confusing. Um, so that would the effect would be shorting a mortgage, uh, mortgage-backed security or a pool of mortgage, mortgage-backed securities. And it really came down to Moody's and S&P, and this is, I don't, I won't go into it too much because it's in the book and the movie, but they did not have a model which actually showed home prices ever going down. So, I mean, you think about cannabis, even cannabis companies now are projecting on cannabis prices coming down, right? Just on a state-by-state basis, at least there's some logic in that math. There was no logic that home prices would ever not go down. So that was the core of the thesis and everything around that, the builders, the banks, the mortgages themselves, I mean, anybody, building supply companies would be impacted by that. So that was kind of that. The the scariest moment was certainly um, when having worked at a hedge fund, we were working at a hedge fund that was owned by Morgan Stanley and realizing that we may not even be able to be paid and or our livelihood was also at stake because Morgan Stanley themselves, the bank that we technically worked for or as a subsidiary of, um, was actually long the stuff that we were short. And we did all we could to try to tell Morgan Stanley that uh, the people on a certain floor at Morgan Stanley were putting them at risk. They really wanted to hear none of it. So that was the scariest one was realizing that. And then, you know, in the in the book and in in the in the movie, it portrays us on the steps of St. Patrick's Cathedral 
And shortly after the Lehman collapse, the markets were going haywire. I was sitting at my desk and I started to realize this is not just about making money anymore. This is about the livelihood. And, and as we stood on the steps of St. Patrick's Cathedral, and in the movie, it has me asking to go eat at a restaurant or something in Nobu, which was never the case. I just want that out there. I'm not really a foodie. Uh, was watching people walk by. Literally, everything felt like it was in slow motion. And I almost, we almost felt sorry for everybody, including ourselves, that what was going on was going to have an impact, just like you just said, on everyone. So that was a scary, surreal moment. Um, and uh, yeah, that's basically it. And I wouldn't say we bet against the banks, per se, because keep in mind, it was the people at the banks that had set up these desks that were also profited, profiting, some of them, from being short. But the products that, products that they were selling, obviously, they were making a lot of money on, and eventually, they had to pay the piper. And so we did short banks. I'm just saying we didn't target the banks, per se. We, tar we targeted them. Well, the, the reason I, I phrased it that way is, you know, you could say you were betting against the housing market. And if you bet against the housing market, you're betting against both American people and the American economy. I didn't think you were doing that. I think that you realize that all these these synthetic products were basically built on 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 sand, and you saw it before anybody else did, and you just figured it out. Somebody had to make a profit on the other side of the trade. Why not you? Right, and I think uh, we were we weren't as early. We were early on housing, but as far as putting on the trade, the actual credit default swap trade, Michael Burry, who portrayed by. Christian Bale in the movie, um, he was very early to the point where if we had been that early, we'd have been taken out of that trade before we were ever going to be able to make money off of it. So I would say like in anything in life, timing is everything. We truly had lucky timing in the sense of, yes, we put the right product on. We were able to execute what we wanted to, but it really started working from day one. Um, and as an equity hedge fund moving into credit default swaps, you know, you better be right because you're going to get your fund taken away from you if you're wrong. So that was fortunate in terms of timing on that for sure so so in the movie and in the book you're a central character um in michael lewis's book uh, and i just rewatched the big short and got pissed off all over again um so <laughs> how accurate you know you said it, your character was a foodie um but but beyond that how accurate was um rafe spall's uh portrayal of you well i would say that from the book to the movie vincent daniel and i's character were somewhat intertwined and put into Vinny's character. Jeremy Strong played him in the movie, and Jeremy Strong came in the office to shadow um, Vinny um, and a couple of the other actors around. Rafe never really did that. Rafe and I met down in New Orleans on set, went to dinner with our wives, and he quickly said to me, he says, hey, what's it like to be Danny Moses? And that, that was his background. I go, well, maybe we should wife swap, and we could find out each other's business. Now, <laughs> Now his wife is a famous French actress. She's a she's a James Bond uh, girl, um, 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 Elise Dutois, lovely lady. And she turned to me. She goes, "I'm seven months pregnant. I don't think you'd enjoy it," or something like funny, really funny. And so Rafe and I got along great. That was kind of broke the ice there. But you know, as far as the way that Adam McKay portrayed my character, um, it wasn't as intense. I mean, in the book, I'm the one that says, "How are you going to fuck me?" Yeah, you know, to the broker, not Vinny. But in the movie, I'm like, where are we going to go eat? In the movie, you know, I'm chased by an alligator. That obviously never really happened. You know, we, you know, we did knock on doors of homes that were empty. We did go through neighborhoods um, wow. and, and things like that. So we, 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 we did do that. But um, I think I was much more intense in real life on the desk itself than I was portrayed in the movie. But all in all, I'm not upset. You know, it's, it's fine. And I don't know why they did that testicle thing at the beginning. I asked Adam McKay, I go, you had to throw that in? He goes, Adam, <laughs> testicle thing. I'm like, great. Thanks, Adam. So no, I mean, it, every it, good movie needs a testicle joke, right? Exactly. Right. Why not? Why not? <laughs> so, so going back to that moment, was there something that like, there's, was there like this one moment in time where you're like, Oh shit, this is it. We're, we're headed to a great depression. Cause I, I remember mine. Um, we used to work with an inner broker dealer, credit default swaps. And I was, he was in the middle of a lawsuit and, and I, I had a, a reporter, the, the, the debt reporter for the wall street journal sitting in my office. And, and this guy was taking him through, uh, my client was taking this reporter through all of the, the, the dominoes that were about to fall. And as he's, as the client's taking the reporter through this, we're watching on the TV, the, the Congress vote for the bailout, the first bailout bill. And it failed. And, and we just stopped. And we're like, fuck, we are so screwed. Did you have one of those moments while you were on the desk? You know, I think the moment I kind of 
you know, there was a lot of moments um, along the way, but one of them, we were short Lehman for a long time. Um, and we felt that Lehman was in was at the epicenter of everything that was wrong. And it, it, what was weird about it was I had friends that worked at Lehman. They may have been on the high yield desk, et cetera. They were completely separated. They were actually short the markets, were short mortgages, and they did not understand what Lehman themselves was involving themselves in on the corporate level. And so there was a Sunday in September 2008 uh, prior to Lehman filing bankruptcy um, that I, th I was on the fields for one of my son's sport, you know, sporting events or something. And I saw a friend of mine who worked at Lehman. And while we were both standing there, um, news came out across the wire that Lehman was in need of funds and was potentially either going to go bankrupt or be shut. And that was the moment kind of when I'm at, I actually was out of the office, away from the ticker, away from day to day that I realized if Lehman truly goes under, you know, what are the repercussions? And we didn't think anybody really understood that. So I would say it was this, the Sunday in September that Lehman kind of announced that they were in need of financing or looking to be sold. And um, we came into work that next Monday. I know the markets were down huge. I think they were down on second day. And I think the government stepped in and I don't have everything in front of me, but government stepped in and did something and started one of their programs, you know, that they had did with the TARP and the TAUF and so forth. So um, that was the moment I think that I felt, uh, again, because I was off the desk that day, that I actually was able to have a whole different vantage point. There was no stocks open, nothing was moving. You know, when the stocks are opening and closing and they're trading during the day, you get an immediate feedback loop, right? When you don't have that and something happens on a Sunday and you have a full day to digest that information, a lot of things go run through your mind about how this is all going to play out. And I actually started to feel bad and think about my friends that worked at Lehman for 15, 20 years that had millions of dollars in Lehman stock. I don't think anyone around the country is going to cry for them, but I realized that they were completely innocent bystanders in this, just having worked at the firm um, you know, that, that was at the epicenter of this. So it was a, it was a wild moment for sure. So following the near total financial collapse in 2007 and, and when Barack Obama came in and the Congress kind of got their heads out of their asses and passed stuff like the Volcker Rule, and, and that'll be in the show notes as well, and Dodd-Frank, um, it seemed like Wall Street had their insatiable greed being reined in. Seeing what's happening now with, you know, the orange piece of shit in the White House um, and, and, and what's going on in, in, on Wall Street now, um, where's your level of stress about the financial situation, the financial system? I mean, I'm sorry. Well, the, you know, the banks themselves are pretty healthy here. Just any type of capital ratio that you would look at where you run into problems is derivatives. You know, when, when you get into derivatives, no matter what it is, whether it's, you know, it may, maybe it'll happen in Bitcoin. It could happen in something else, but when it's not a zero sum game, right? Someone is taking leverage and, um, and, uh, um, you know, exposing themselves, whether they make money or lose, you won't know that for a while. So it's always in derivatives. And in that case, at this moment, at least, I don't think there's anything out there that really scares me. There are products like levered ETFs and things like that that are out there that we've seen in the last three to four years, fits and starts where some of them blow up. It happened in the energy markets a couple of years ago. Um, you know, you've seen it happen um, in some of the debt markets when you had the kind of the debt bubble kind of implode slightly when the Fed started raising rates, when they talked about taper tantrum, that whole thing, right? You saw glimpses of it, but you've yet to see full scale. That's where I think you're going to end up having something is in the ETF market. Um, and there have been there there have been times where the SEC has been asking various ETF firms to look through and examine what's the risk. And, the, and ETFs in general, to me, pose a risk just because I think they provide a false sense of security to people in the marketplace. And it really creates correlation of one, right? Everything's kind of correlated. If you look at the ETFs, they all hold 90% of the stocks are the exact same. You think you're diversified, but you're really not. And then there's these fixed income ETFs, which I think have the ultimate problem. So people that wanted yield, if you're a retail investor, you're, you're owning you know, some of these um, BlackRock ETFs. I'm not singling them out. It just happens to be they own some of them. You may own the JNK, which is the high yield ETF, because you're looking for yield. And that's fine, except... There's a mismatch of duration. In the old days, you would buy a bond and hold it to duration if you're, if you're an insurance company or pension fund. These are literally minute by minute uh, in and out of bond funds, right? So it doesn't really match. The few times that we've seen a rush for the exits, you've seen these products underperform massively. And so consumers need to realize that they can lose in principle, just like you can in a bond, quickly while you're getting this yield. And so I think that's, that's an issue also. As far as Dodd-Frank and 
Volcker rule being pulled back and repealed, there will be a consequence to it. You know, you're, they're, they're allowing now, I think, more prop trading will come back a little bit. Some of these larger banks on Wall Street can now own pieces of hedge funds, private equity, more than they could, even though they may have been doing it. Um, where, so where is Glass-Steagall when we need it? Right, exactly. So I'm, I'm somewhere in between. I do think some of the archaic, some of the things were archaic in the sense of small community banks that had to adhere to these compliance issues that the larger banks really have and the smaller ones don't. They did create an unnecessary cost, in my opinion, because these weren't the banks. That, these are the mom and pop banks, right? These are the ones in your local community banks. And they had to really deal with a lot of compliance costs. And I'm, I'm glad to see that there is some common sense there uh, being being applied. So there were some things that went overboard. That being said, Wall Street has a knack for if you give them an inch, right, they're going to take it. They're going to take a foot and they will hang themselves on rope. There's no question. It could be an oil. You will you will see um, if the markets ever do sell off on a continued basis or a certain part of the market, whether it's it's energy, uh, materials, whatever, you, you will see repercussions. And I don't know at this point with what's going on in Congress, if there would even be a hearing right now, if JP Morgan or Goldman Sachs took a, call it a $700 million loss on something related, like some type of derivative product. So kind of remains to be seen. It is setting up that way though, that um, you are gonna have something, you always do normally, but it is gonna allow the potential for hazardous things to occur, I would say. That was a long-winded answer to your question, but. <laughs> So no, it's, it, but you know what? Danny, it's needed. That. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but I, but right now, like Lewis said earlier, this is a, a cannabis podcast, so I'd like to pivot to that. Yep. How, can you talk about how you got involved in in this industry? Sure. Um, I kind of always had a, a my eye on it slightly um, over the last several years, but my thought process on cannabis at the time was hey, everybody knows someone who went out to Colorado five or six years ago, started growing cannabis, owned a piece of a dispensary, sold it. They're doing okay, but not great. And that's really the extent of cannabis. And I realized, obviously, that wasn't the case. And it was easy to ignore it because it's illegal. The banking system can't touch it. The stocks that are out there, we can get into that. The trade in the U.S., a lot of them have very poor governance, you know, et cetera. So I was introduced to uh, Mitch Barukowitz, who runs Merida Capital, about a year and a half ago, who had who had been a Wall Street lawyer. Um, he had worked at Market Access, and then he worked at Pally, and he worked at un Unwinding Pally at the time, um, Pally Capital. And um, in the midst of all that, I guess he wrote a couple of license applications for various states, Minnesota, Connecticut, uh, back in kind of 2010, 2011, 2012, and then realized that he himself should be looking into the industry, and why is he outsourcing his own his own uh, his own uh, stock when he can do it himself. So he started Merit, I believe, in 2014, kind of 15, raised fund one. I met him in early 2017. And did uh, you get? Are you in any of his funds, or just invest alongside of him? No, I'm actually in his funds. I'm in both fund one and fund two. He's certain he's currently in tranche three of fund two. And what's really interesting is Mitch's approach is to invest in the ancillary businesses. And, and I know you guys know some of these companies because you work with them, but whether it's Kush bottles at packaging, which I've done side by side, uh, you know, you know, investments with him, that would be one of them. Grogen, which you guys know very well, uh, and a couple other lab testing companies, Steep Hill, um, a couple product companies. But basically his thought was, let's do the lighting, let's do the packaging, let's do all this. And that's been the way that, and I totally agree with that thought process. And what's really interesting is if you get into these companies in, in the early stages, um, maybe not at inception, but soon after, and we can talk about this as well, there's a real opportunity to help not just shape the culture of the company itself. And I'm not doing that. I would give that over to Mitch. But you can also set the governance up for the board. You can help them set up structure. And the best part or the worst part for the companies, the best part for, for the uh, investor is the terms that you can get that you can ask for and receive with some of these companies are really unlike anything you would ever see that had that also has the positive macro backdrop going on. So whether it's warrants, whether it's a very high yielding note, whatever it might be, you know, you can really um, write your own ticket there. So Mitch has been great in this. He's built up a portfolio. I don't know how many companies now between 12 and 14 companies, I think, between the two funds, maybe in a, a bit more at this point. And starting to branch out into some of the growers, et cetera. Um, and, and so it's really been interesting to watch along the way and getting a look at his investments 
um, and getting a look at the people running the investments, some great, some not so great, you know, uh, you kind of get a, a much better vantage point than just looking at a stock price and trying to read a 10Q or a 10K because there's stuff happening every every moment right now in the industry, as you guys know. So yeah. you've been you've called cannabis the big long. I mean, you yes. were you were in on the short and now you're in on the long. But what do you why is it called the big long? Um, that came up to me like spur of the moment at a conference. But I realized, you know, that, you know, there's not many people um, that were willing, to, as you pointed out earlier, to take a bet against the housing market for various reasons. People, people did not want to believe it at the time because they knew that not just everyone owns a home, not everyone, but 60 percent of people own homes and that it would have an impact on their lives. The big long in the sense of I think people want to choose to ignore cannabis for now because it's illegal. There's a lot of ways you can just say, hey, I'm not going to deal with it. Um, and, and these companies are crappy. And if there's a time, I'll do it. I think the time is now to, to kind of take the risk. Um, you know, and I say that not I'm not growing it. Obviously, I would never take that type of risk myself. But um, as as an investor, I think we're in the second or third inning here of what is if, you, if it's a nine inning game, it may go longer, but I really don't believe there's gonna be a fourth, fifth, sixth or seventh inning. Hmm. Um, so I think we're kind of setting the stages right now. So the big long, in my opinion, is gonna be occurring over the next, I think six to 12 months, if not even sooner. And whether it's the midterm elections that potentially provide meaningful catalysts coming up, whatever it might be, or the banking system or a descheduling of the drug, whatever it might be, I, I think that the, the risk reward here is fantastic. And I also think you need to have long duration. These are not stocks that you really want to trade in and out of on a continuous basis. Obviously, there's some volatility in Canada. Some of the names there do, do move a lot um, quickly. And so you need to react to those. But I think you need to pick your stocks, pick your winners uh, in each, each kind of category that I just talked about, you know, the packaging, the suppliers, the lighting, whatever it might be. And, and I think private equity not having to deal with the day-to-day -day movement in stocks that can really create and force confusion and make you make bad moves and decisions is the best way to do it and kind of get a diversified portfolio in, you know, in that regard. So, um, no, I, I think it's, uh, I, I think it's a great three to five year trade. And I think if you're in the right names, I, I think there's tons of money. to. Be All right. Here. So I wasn't, I wasn't going to ask you, but I got to ask you, are there any names that you want to, you want to shout out? You know, if, if I'm, a, cause this is all retail, right? I mean, you're not seeing real institutions get in on the money. Um, so yeah. are there any, uh, you know, are there sure. No, I mean, I, so, so I like to, you know, pick various names, but, um, Liberty health sciences, I think is a really good name. I, I like their assets that they're building currently in the U S they now froze the terms on their deal with Afria, so they, um, Afria will not be selling those shares. So that kind of gives you a little bit of room. At least you don't have to worry about that for the next 18 months and stay on 20% of the company, I believe. Um, I do like Kush Bottles. I'm not just pushing your guys' product there, but I think Kush Bottles is a great company. I think they're doing the right things and the, the growth is there. Um, uh, Iamphus. Um, I think is a very interesting company. I love the markets, Florida that they're that they're in. And, um, they're expanding, I think, to more more states going forward. I like the way that they think about the business. You also know, a KCSA client. What's that? Sorry. It's also one of our clients. Okay. And you have to be vertically integrated. To own just a grower makes no sense, right? You have to own the whole channel distribution. So you need to be vertically integrated, own the distribution, own, own the dispensary, et cetera. So I think, and, and you know, again, 99% of these companies, well, maybe all of them, I've actually met the management of. And, you know, I'll always take a small stake in a company. And if I plan on taking a bigger stake, but, you know, between the small and the bigger stake, I want to go meet with the company and get a better idea for what they're really trying to do. Um, so those are some of them. And then, you know, just to, to pitch Mitch, I mean, his fund Merida, um, I think, is ripe. And they do own Kush Bottles in their portfolio. So it's, they own two public companies. That's one of them. Grogen's the other one, GRWG. And I, I think that's the, that's the best way to play. Um, and, you know, in my opinion, um, get, getting into some of these smaller companies and then having the ability to monetize it either through the public markets later or M&A, which I think will be occurring. And all of this, I think, is predicated upon the descheduling or rescheduling of the drug, um, which should happen uh, and or some type of state law that's passed that. Trump said he would sign, but you know I don't think he even knows what he says. So oh, the, the states, sure. yeah, the states yeah. after whatever. Exactly. That's called. So, uh, do you yeah. have any any thoughts on when that you think that'll happen? We kind of ask all of our guests that. I and mean, you've know, heard everything it, from two months to ten years. Right. Uh, listen, there's there's 
with I think ninety something percent of people um, support medical marijuana, sixty two or sixty three percent support rec marijuana. That's a lot of constituents. So anyone looking to pick up votes, I think. So the midterm election, I think you'll get a lot of positive noise around cannabis. I actually think that um, that getting into these stocks before the midterm election, the right ones, is is key. I think we may launch into the next inning to from the second to the third rather quickly uh, after the midterm elections. Whether they actually pass that state um, bank law or the, the state laws, kind of like they did for sports gambling, kind of you know invoking the tenth, tenth Amendment rights, yep. then you would have state banks being set up that were protected. Because right now, I don't know. I'm sure you guys are aware of this. Everyone listening may not know the FDIC banks by law cannot um, cannot do business in cannabis because it's a Schedule One drug, cannabis itself, and it would be deemed to be drug trafficking and money laundering and all these other laws that come into place. It'd be, it, it's the equivalent to dealing in heroin uh, for banks. So um, the other thing that I would touch on is the hypocrisy that exists within some of these banks. I mean, you have Wells Fargo shutting down people's accounts that they think are involved in any type of cannabis business, yet they're the advisor on Scott's Miracle Grows, you know, $600 million acquisition. Or Constellation Brands, which, you know, made the huge investment in Canada. The advisors on that were Bank America. JP Morgan. So there's so much hypocrisy. We all know how Wall Street works, right? Where there's real money to be made, they'll go grab it. But when there's nickels and dimes and they can make an excuse to uh, show show that they're following the letter of the law, they'll start closing people's accounts. So that will quickly change um, if states, I think, get the protection that, that, that they should have. So, Do you think there are any lessons to be learned from, from the housing market? I mean, we're talking all about risk here, right? And the, the fact that you know, banks can't participate right now, but is there, is there, are there any parallels you can draw from what you learned in 2006, seven and eight with what you're seeing now? I mean, they're two totally different industries. One is, you know, the foundation of our economy. The other is, you know, turning something, a black market into a thriving market. Is there, is there, are there any correlations there or am I just? No, there are correlations. You know, I, I think there's a couple of correlations. One is that I think housing became a fad it wasn't just about the numbers. It was that everyone we knew was was buying a home, selling a home, owning two homes, buying a home, fixing it, selling it, owning three homes on you know three different mortgages. It, it actually became a an in vogue thing to do. I think one of the dangers cannabis could be. Hey, I'm just going to buy any stock I see because I believe that this cannabis thing is real and it's picking up steam. Well, biggest difference in that is the institutions were long housing. The big institutions, and in cannabis, to your point earlier, it's just you know mom and pop retail people, the real institutions aren't in these stocks yet. So the parallel would be that the retail people that are looking to buy cannabis stocks right now are throwing caution to the wind and buying anything cannabis, the same way that everybody was not just buying housing stocks, but housing itself was, was being bought because that, that was the cool thing to do. So that's one similarity. And so for, for a retail investor who is not, you know, somebody who knows how to really read a filing and you're right, there are, there are just, a, a tra tremendous amount of money sloshing around on E-Trade and Ameritrade and, and all those other platforms. If you were to sit down with, I don't know, my teenage son who is 15, who doesn't know how to read a Q or a K, how would you tell him to analyze these companies? Because he, he actually buys pot stocks himself and he listens to me and I, I'll help him understand because I understand the industry, but you know, if you're, t if you're explaining it, what makes for a good investment? How do you explain this to the average retail investor? Um, well, you know, I think, um, kind of the Peter Lynch style of, uh, you know, investing, I think you need to try it. I'm no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, but no, you know, I, I, I think you need to really break it down. And I mean, it is, you, you really do need to read the Q's and the K's and you do really need to look at, listen to a conference call that, one of these companies have had, listen to a couple, listen to how management thinks about their business. Listen to look, look at how they pay themselves. Um, you know, look, look at, uh, how, how so from paying themselves, if they're paying themselves in equity more than cash, it means that they really believe in the company. If they're playing themselves in cash more than equity, they probably have less of a long-term view of the value of the company. Right? Well, you know, that, that goes back to controlling the board and the, you know, ability to issue a billion shares, literally, which I see in some of these penny stocks. So some will claim that that they'll use that as an excuse. They'll say, well, you know, I'm not taking much salary because we're trying to get profitable, but I'm just paying myself in shares. And then they don't include their their 
compensation in their um, on you know on their expense items, which is a joke because that's a big thing, obviously not just in cannabis but in tech in general. This non-cash comp uh, that doesn't get doesn't get included; it gets you know adjusted out. So I would be aware of any type of adjustments. I would be wary of shares um, that are able to be issued but not yet outstanding. I would be look. I would look at the pattern of yes, yeah, some of these guys are, and girls sell shares that's the way that they make money and i don't have a problem with that you know but you do have to look there's limits to what you really want to see you also want to see i read the backgrounds of all the executives you know look look where they came from look where they've been do they have a record god forbid of some kind (laughs) you know i'm serious it's not hard you can spend an hour and just topically start to look at various things about a company and get a real feel for the culture of the company Kind of how it's organized, you know, you know, et cetera. Some of the best companies, um, you know, not even cannabis, are the ones that are underfollowed. And Wall Street has a knack, obviously, you know, 62 analysts that cover Amazon, 74 that cover IBM, and so forth. Sometimes there's three analysts that cover a particular company. Those are always, to me, whether it, it could be in real estate, it could be in cannabis, it could be in technology. Those those provide the best opportunity because that means that you actually have to do your own work, and the work is not done for you. I always say the worst thing you can do, I always equate it to horse racing. When you walk into a walk into a track and you don't look at the program first, but you look at the odds board and there's eight horses on the board and the two horses, even money and the nine horses, 22 to one or the eight horses, 22 to one. And you haven't looked at in the program and you take the lazy way out. Your brain's going to tell you to go bet on the two horse at even money. Right. Because the public must know they must know something. And, and a lot of that has it. I kind of look I look at the portfolio investing like that. You want to actually go find the 22 to one horse that nobody seems to understand. And there maybe you know that there's a better reason that they don't. So maybe there's a product application within cannabis. Like let's use patches, for example, right? Which is also, Mitch has a portfolio, has a, Mana is a company in his portfolio. I think patches, which are now less than 1% of the market for cannabis delivery are going to dominate in terms of growth rate. I want to find a patch company I don't know if there is one that's public. You, you guys would probably know that before I would. And then I'm going to start with that and then I'm going to work my way backwards, like I just mentioned, right? I'm going to, okay, I found the category that I want. How's the management? How's the corporate structure, et cetera? And what, what are people projecting as far as growth rate? Um, and the other thing going on within cannabis that I'm wary of, but I understand it is these the, all the mergers going on. So all the MA, and people are forced to obviously use their stock as currency, right? Because they're just, you know, again, the banking system is not providing capital. There's no loans being provided against assets, things like that. So I, I get that. You got to really look and see what they're really giving up. Then you got to look at lockup restrictions. When are these shares coming to market? You know, there's not a lot of coverage of these stocks. So you really need to do your homework before you just start blindly going in to these stocks. So I would say it's a, I know that's another long-winded answer, but there's really not one recipe that works to how you would want to, but, you know, I, I think becoming comfortable with the with the sector of cannabis itself, comfortable with the product itself or whatever that may be they may be doing within it. Look at the look at the board, look at the governance, um, look at the pay grade, everything. Um, and and uh, so another you know long answer to that, but I hope that answers your question. Well I have a question before we get to Canada because we want to talk Canada too. What's your you know What's your day like? What do you, you know, you talk about, you know, reading all these filings and doing your research there, but from a media standpoint, who do you think is reporting on? There's there's a couple of reporters who cover it, but largely it's ignored by the CNBCs of the world and the Fox businesses of the world and the Wall Street Journal. So do you have any favorite reporters that you're that you're tracking or outlets that, you know, seem to, to get it yeah, more than I mean, others? Obviously, um, I follow um, Alan Brockstein at 420. Um, obviously, Tom Tom Angel, who I think does a great job. I follow him on Twitter. He's Those very some- fun on Twitter. Yes. Yeah. So I so I, I do use Twitter a lot for that. Um, you know, I uh, the Alan's app, New Cannabis Ventures. I think that's his app, correct? Yeah, it's uh, awesome. Yeah, it's great. That pops up all the time, and it's always timely and. There's always more to dig when he puts something out. You know, there's always there's always more to dig, and I love the way that he thinks about the business. Um, so those are kind of the two big ones that I use. Um, Bloomberg has articles from time to time. Uh, Forbes obviously has them. Tom writes some of those, uh, you know, him, himself. But you're right. But that, that there again is the opportunity. The minute that the Wall Street Journal starts putting out cannabis articles every day, 
I'm going to worry that the stocks may be, you know, a bit rich. Mm. So, um, but no, it is, it's, it's a total, um, you know, um, what's the word I'm looking for ad hoc, I guess right now is, is in terms of trying to find, find all this information, but it's out there. It really sounds like the same type of research that, that you did and, um, Dr. Barry did, uh, around CDS and, and the, you know, the mortgage market, you know, they, you guys just dug in, you know, you have to do the same, you have to do the work. There's no easy way to, to identify what to invest in. You got to do the work. CDOs should have been a schedule one drug should have been banned before they ever, <laughs> ever kind of existed, not cannabis, but yes, you really have to do the work and dig. So now let's talk about Canada. They have these, these companies have these enormous valuations. Um, some think they're insane. Other things, other people think that they're priced right. Some think they're undervalued. What's, where do you stand on um, the Canadian market? So what's really interesting is there was a, I can totally understand the richness of the Canadian stocks from a scarcity value, at least up until six months ago. And the fact that they were using their stocks as currency and making other acquisitions of other expensive companies, I totally understood as well. What's really interesting now is the U.S. companies, U.S. business-focused companies, which are listing in Canada as the primary exchange that only have U.S. businesses. So now up in Canada, there's a massive bifurcation, in my opinion, because you're looking at Canadian companies that they may sell not just in Canada, they certainly don't sell in the US, but they may sell around the world, very expensive. Then you look at the newly listed Canadian companies that only do business in the US, and they're much cheaper on a relative basis on any metric that you would look at. Um, those may be expensive in and of themselves, whether there's, you know, growers that are that are that are in Florida, that are I just saw one that just it's gonna IPO, I think, next week up in Canada, whatever it might be, there's really no comparison. So now I think you're gonna start to see the gap. Titan. Um, and I think the Canadian companies themselves, the ones that are focused on Canada, are moving into a show me state, uh, so to speak, on their numbers. And I'm, I think you're starting to see some of these stocks getting hit on what were um, unrealistic numbers or projections. Um, so are, are you shorting any of these companies? I am not short any Canadian cannabis company right now, nor in the US, actually. Um, and that's not because it's first. It's hard to get a bar on a Canadian listed security for me. I'm, I don't have an you know an account set up to do that. I, I could do that if I wanted to. I can short U.S. stocks for sure. Um, I've bought I've bought puts from time. I don't want to name the names of some of the Canadian companies that I have because they're, if they're listed in the U.S. and I can and I can buy puts on them, I do. Um, but uh, you know, I, I'm I'm such a believer in the on the macro basis on this trade from a sector. It's hard to want to go short right now, and I don't have enough on the long side in the public markets to validate going short something. But I do think it is lining up well. I think to go to go long, U.S. focused companies listed in Canada versus Canadian focused companies that are also listed in Canada. Actually, that's a great setup trade. It's probably something that I will be looking at to change, you know, set up an account to do that. I just haven't as of yet. So U.S. companies have to go to Canada if they want to list now, right? And and there are Canadian companies that are now listing down here. So, um, I think those ADR listings, those aren't true. You know, their, their primary exchange is still in Toronto, but yes. Well, no, no, see. no. Like Kronos is here and yeah, Kronos and, is listed here now. Yeah. Canopy growth is down here. You know, they're, they're, you know, you see these companies now, you know, these Canadian companies who don't have any feet in the U S listing on the New York stock exchange Correct. and NASDAQ and the American companies to raise capital have to go to the Canadian stock exchange, which is not the, you know, it's not even the Toronto exchange. It's, it's the, the secondary market, the third market. Um, is this sustainable or what, you know, what's going to happen here? Well, as soon as the U S uh, exchanges realize what they're missing out on completely, uh, you know, I think there's a listings issue. There's a certain, there's a certain type of requirement, obviously goes back again to, uh, uh, financials, the way your board is set up governance, audited financial statements. So there's a reason that some U S companies, I'm not saying all can't even list in the U S yet, or they're on bulletin board and they do want to uplist, they have to meet certain certain type of requirements, pretty much the same thing. But listen, I, I think as soon as the drug is rescheduled or descheduled and or I think even the state protection, things will move quickly. It's just, you know, the SEC doesn't even know what to do right now. Um, they're confused. You know, they're, they're calling around broker dealers, I've heard, just saying, hey, what are you doing in this space? We just want to know what you're doing. They're, you know, they call around to investors. Hey, we see you participate in this. What are you guys doing in this space? And they're not, I don't think they're calling to 
um, question that they're going to throw throw a citation or find them. I think it's more they're really trying to get a grip. So I think it's in real time happening right now. But unless the SEC comes out and blesses these things, the exchanges themselves uh, aren't really going to make a move towards aggressively marketing towards listing, at least primary listing um, in in the U.S. right now. So I, it's not worth it yet to them. Like I said before, as soon as it, these companies become bigger and bigger and they can't ignore it, I think it'll all happen at one time. So, um, but you are, you're, to your point, you are seeing bits and pieces start to happen. Um, and, and it's it's just few and far between right now. So, so we're going to take a pivot to social justice issues. Um, your podcast, Bale Street uh, is really cool. Again, we'll provide a uh, link in the show notes. You talk with celebrities, athletes, uh, everyone who's who's been through the works of the criminal justice system and, and reforming the system seems to be something that's very core to who you are. Uh, can you talk a little bit about that? And what do you see as the overlap with the cannabis industry? Well, the overlap with cannabis is that um, in the fight to... Um, to change the scheduling for the drug, a lot of Democrats are also asking that you go back and you know adjudicate a lot of these crimes that have to do with marijuana over the last whatever year. So if someone's serving a sentence in California for 20 years for possession, um, that 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 uh, conviction should be overturned and thrown out. And that's where those meet is justice reform and cannabis meet there because it was a racist policy that started in late 60s, early 70s under Nixon, right? Um, and the whole basis for it was racist, um, cannabis, to making it a Schedule One drug, you know, in my opinion, and I think that's the opinion of many. So if you go back to that, if, if you go back to that and then move fast forward, why not go back and say, okay, let's let's right or wrong. Never should have been a Schedule One drug. And in doing that, why, if it wasn't a Schedule One drug at the time, or shouldn't have been enforced that way, these prison sentences should be commuted. So that was kind of the whole, Basis. When we started Bale Street, it was never truly intended to be about justice reform and bail reform. It's just where the show has has gone because it's it's it, it's an well it's an exciting topic is the wrong word. It's a hot topic. Um, what what I should say. So we happen to have um, we've had Mitch on our show. Obviously, we had Michael yeah. Lewis on our show. We didn't talk about criminal reform there. And then it turned into Ira's clients. Ira's a bail bondsman to the stars. So Ira has bailed out everyone you can think of that you've ever read about in a paper was Iris Bale. <laughs> and so he can't really talk about things in real time uh, as they're happening because they're his clients and some of the stuff like Conor McGregor, the news you saw yet uh, that just came out yesterday, he had known weeks ago that he wasn't going to serve a day in prison. He was going to do community service. Uh, we're, you know, recording, we're recording this on July 27th, by the way. July 27th, exactly. The Conor McGregor news was on the 26th. Um, so it just it's just kind of gone that way. And I think it's a, it's, it's a topic that... That's not going to go away. Um, if you if you listen to what Ira says about it, obviously his livelihood is bail, but he's in complete agreement that there's a level of bail reform that needs to come in, and and there's been, you know, investors that are looking at various companies as a way to invest in it. Promise is one of the companies started by Jay Z um, and his people. Um, there's some venture capital funds in that company as well. They're that are basically working with local counties to track a um, a possible felon or whoever whoever gets incarcerated, if they if they can get out on bail, they can't meet the $500 bail, why not just let them out with an ankle bracelet um, so they can go find a job and move on with their life? Why should they spend the rest of their life in prison potentially for shoplifting for their family, you know, or something minor, because that is what ends up happening. And then part of our show, we talked about, you know, Rikers Island, which there's, a you know, obviously a huge movement to shut it down and how corrupt it is and how, what, how bad it is. And so, it's kind of moved moved that way, um, and I like it. Uh, so originally, the show was you know it could be insider traders, right? It could be just the topic of the day, like Tesla is always a hot topic, and I talk about that <laughs> one a lot, obviously as a short. Um, or it could be Irish people. So it just happens that we've we've gotten this blend now, and it, and it seems to be working. So we're gonna I'm sure we're gonna stay on that topic. I would bet at least every other show. So it's great. I mean, I listen to it now regularly, and it really it you know. It really it there is a lot of overlap in in the issues of social justice for the cannabis industry and 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 the people of color problem that the industry faces and yep. what's going on in bail. Um, yep. So 
you know, your show is all about bail. Is there anything you want to confess to? I mean, is that yeah, how right. you got to know I, Ira? You know, I've, I've never, I've never needed Ira for that phone call. I need him for other phone calls, but not for getting out of jail. But I would recommend that everyone puts Ira's phone number in their in their phone. If you want to get out in like a couple hours as opposed to three or four days, we joked on the show that Harvey Weinstein spent eight minutes, I think, in the court total. You know, he didn't spend a day in, in prison, which is a joke. Ugh. He will eventually. But when he went through the system, like that's the way the system is set up, right? It's, it's, it's Curry's favor towards um, wealthy people or people that are somewhat connected. So that's another problem. We don't have to go into that here, but uh, it is a uh, really, really, really interesting. You know, it's a business like anything else um, and it's who you know. So, and a lot of these kids who get thrown in Rikers or get put in jail for minor offenses, their lives are ruined. They don't get the opportunity to defend themselves. It's impossible to, to get um, some type of representation when you're in prison, especially when you don't have resources and you're a teenager or you're 20 years old or it really can thwart your life. And so, Everyone knows that there's something needs to be done. And so I'm hoping that the midterm elections will provide a lot of that. And, you know, I, I hope that cannabis goes along with that. I mean, I think bail reform and justice reform are more important than cannabis, right? Let's forget about that for a second. But at the same time, I think both could be done simultaneously, at least to a degree together. So that'd be great to see. Agreed. Um, we actually haven't talked about your relationship with the plant and your, obviously you haven't needed to be bailed out, but are you a consumer? Not really. Uh, you know, well, we don't have to talk about that, but every once in a while, <laughs> sure. You, know, you want to make sure when you're doing your, your, you're investigating the companies that you want to invest in, you buy, you got to, you know, like Peter Lynch said, you got to try out the products, uh, so to speak. But I, I do think that there is a great medical application for it from the wellness side of things. If you ask me what's healthier for you to drink three vodkas or, put a patch on. The answer is to put a patch on. You know, any doctor would tell any doctor in the right mind would tell you that. So um, I'm not saying if I had to choose which one I would choose, but you can assume that I know about the patch companies themselves. Um, but no, I, I, I can admit to, to saying I would much prefer to consume cannabis than to drink a beer or even a really good glass of wine. It's just better for you. Yeah. And I think that the, my whole interest actually started from uh, interest in the opioid epidemic Thankfully, no one's been impacted in my life that's close to me. I know people that have. And the the thought process of why why is a dentist prescribing 20 um, opioid pills as opposed to three days of medical, you know, medical cannabis? Um, one is very addictive. One is less addictive. Um, and, and so those are the type of things where I thought, logically speaking, it's proven from the wellness side, from the economic side. Those two are irrefutable. What cannabis can do for people. And, it, you know, I think also your people that listen to your show know, but CBD is the non-psychoactive, obviously, you know, ingredient in cannabis. And people still had a problem with that at the time until they really took time to understand, take the time to understand what it is, you know, what it comes from, that it's naturally occurring, that it's naturally occurring in the body. And so people that have this negative stigma, you know, I, I was worried for a while that, hey, you know, I have teenage boys. Um, I don't want them to think that I'm quote pot dad or something like that. I just was wanted to look at this thing logically from the business perspective, from the wellness perspective. And to me, like I said, that goes back to the big long argument. Um, both, both your health and your wealth, I guess you could say can be helped by cannabis. And so, um, you know, I, the horse is out of the barn, um, and it's not coming back in and there may be fits and starts and bumps along the way legally. Uh, maybe a company gets raided here and there that we think is perfectly fine, but they weren't. You know that might happen. Who, who knows? But but um, people that are that are ignoring it now, from the from the health side of things, I think are ignorant. And then also, if they're in the market and they're buying buying stocks in the market in general, I think they need to be looking at cannabis stocks in general also. So I mean, look what's going on in the in the states and the counties where cannabis is legal. Alcohol sales have dropped in those areas. Tobacco sales have dropped in those areas, right? You guys have that data. You guys have seen that yep. before. So if I'm, even if I'm long uh, a tobacco company or long a beverage company that sells alcohol, even if I don't want to go long cannabis, I better understand as a portfolio manager analyst what is going on in the sector. What are the trends going on? And when they do that, I think what they'll find is, hold on, hold on a second. Forget about selling my beverage company or tobacco company. I need to own this cannabis company. So I think that's, you know, I just moved it off from do I use cannabis to what <laughs> I would do. But 
but um, that's um, that was a very nice pivot. So yeah, we're, it was a nice pivot. Yeah. Well done. So we're we're we are we are we took a lot of your time, and um, we really appreciate it. But we are at that point in the the show where we ask all of our guests to to do puff puff pass. This is where you're supposed to kind of do rapid fire. Two things that you love about the cannabis industry, and the one thing that you absolutely hate. So I know you don't smoke, but puff puff pass. <laughs> um, I, you know. I love the wellness aspect of the drug itself. I think it's underutilized and misunderstood. From a wellness perspective, people need to read, get on board, and start using cannabis to, to improve their health where necessary and to just relax in general. Two, I think the economic, the other puff would be the economic benefit that it's going to provide for local communities and states and counties. It's irrefutable, so I think people need to recognize that. And my pass is the horrifying corporate governance on some of these companies, none which we have mentioned today on this podcast. But again, look and see, you know, from a governance perspective, is the CEO also the chairman, you know, is there, or, and is, is he also the CFO? You know, how many shares are being issued? Look, look at the quarterly, look at the 10 Qs, look at the K, even if they're unaudited financials, take a look and do your own work. Um, so I would say navigate uh, well. So I don't know if that was, that's uh, perfect. Uh, past, but that's kind of the three things that come to mind. So that's awesome. So thank you so much um, again to our guest, Danny Moses of Moses Ventures. Um, we will put all the links in the show notes. Um, and man, thank you so much for doing this. Really, thank really, you guys. really, really appreciate it. it. You guys are doing great work. I love your show. Thanks, guys. Uh, thank you. Take okay, care, Danny. Thanks again to our guest, Danny Moses of Moses Ventures. The links to his company, to his podcast, and to all of those uh, criminal justice reform programs are in the show notes. Please really check them out. They're important. And thank you for listening. If you haven't already, please hit the subscribe button and give us a rating and a review. It really helps others find us. If you have a comment or a question, we would love to hear from you. Check us out on uh, social media, on Twitter and Instagram, at... KCSA underscore cannabis, or you can drop us an email at greenrush at kcsa.com. That's one take, Shay. One take.